no. No, but it really does smell a whole lot better in this room all of a sudden. So it's going to be distracting for me, actually. Um, no, well, I know it's already been said a few times, but absolutely happy Mother's Day uh, to all the, the moms and those who uh, have been moms to so many people, especially if you're a teacher and kind of fulfilling a lot of those different roles. And there's so many ways uh, that we can be thankful for moms. And again, um, I'm obviously a father, not a mother. And I can say as a father that being a mother is the toughest job. I think within the house, um, at least for my wife, probably because I'm the husband. Um, you can laugh at that; it's okay. I can be self-deprecating. You guys know me well enough. Um, but no, I'm incredibly thankful for mothers, um, especially for my mother. Um, she did a wonderful job raising three boys, which is not the easiest thing. Uh, but all of us, I think, turned out pretty decently well. Uh, so I'm definitely thankful to her for putting up with us, especially all the the stinky, smelly car rides from all the sporting events and. Uh, wet soccer socks that would get left in a bag for months or hidden in the car. All the different things that many of you are familiar with. Uh, but I'm incredibly thankful for my mother uh, on Mother's Day as well. Um, this morning we're just going to continue here. and I'm going to try to jump right in and get moving pretty quickly because there's a lot of ground to cover, but we're going to move uh, we're going to move pretty quickly, but we're going to continue in our study of Colossians. We're going to be looking at uh, in chapter two, verses 10 through 15 today. Um, if the Lord wills that we get to verse 15, we're going to get there. If not, we'll end up stopping in 12 or 13. Um, but again, I just want to kind of recap. And again, we're continuing to kind of be in this, uh, this, this month and this time of year where a lot of people are on vacations, a lot of people are traveling. Um, some have returned, even though it may have been begrudgingly from Hawaii, but we're thankful to have them back. And as others continue to travel, just continue to be in prayer uh, for them and for, for those uh, that are not doing as, doing well and continue to pray for them. But this morning, uh, we're going to look at verses 10 through 15, but I just want to recap and essentially uh, focus just briefly from last week on two different verses. In verse 4 of Colossians chapter 2, he's writing to them saying, And this I say, lest any man should beguile you with enticing words. And then down in verse 8, Beware, lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit. After the tradition of men after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. We talked a lot about, about philosophy and this, this warning of don't let people confuse you or trick you, beguile you or deceive you with philosophy and with all of these other things. And philosophy, we looked at that word, and it comes out to be love of wisdom. And as he's saying, let no one beguile you or fool you, this carried the idea of empty deception. We, there was the illustration and the understanding of a fish hook, Right? Because again, some of you that are that fish, you would understand this better than I would. But the idea of it's empty deception because is a hook what the fish expected? Yes or no? No, the fish wasn't expecting a hook or else it's an incredibly, incredibly dumb fish. You might say there's no smart fish and I might agree with you. But again, this idea of empty deception, a fish hook, it's not what you thought it was going to be. It was promising you one thing and what you ended up getting was something completely different. And Paul is making the argument not to be persuaded by these things, not to be deceived by them, saying you don't need philosophy, you don't need all of these other things, and that you are complete in Christ. These philosophies, these things, they're after traditions of men. There's no wisdom in it. They're empty, deceitful traditions of men. He even calls it the rudiments of the world. This is the elementary things. And we looked at the ABCs. From the very beginning, we all learned the ABCs. I don't think many of us would say the ABCs is some higher level of learning and this incredibly difficult thing to grasp and understand. 
But this is what he's saying. The philosophy is all based from these elementary understandings, claiming to be wise, but yet it's foolishness and it's elementary. Saying you don't need all of these things. You are complete in Christ. And that's where we ended in verse 10, and that's where we're going to pick up this morning. Starting in verse 10, reading down through verse 15, he writes, And ye are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power, in whom also ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, and putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God, who hath raised him from the dead. And you, being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you uh, for this morning, and we, we thank you that you've given each and every one of us the opportunity to, to be here today, to, to join together in worship of you, and simply just to, to set aside time to only look at you and nothing else this morning. God, I pray that as we study your word in these next few moments, that it would be something that we would truly uh, seek to, to understand and seek to apply and seek to uh, intimately embrace and that it would grow our affection for you. And God, we thank you for your word, that you've made it so clear to us and that you continue to reveal yourself through it. Uh, God, we continue to give you all the praise and glory this morning. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. So here we are back in verse 10. and He's starting off here in this section, after he had just built the case, which he didn't build too much of a case for, it was already something that he has understood and done openly in previous verses. But in verse 9, in Christ dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, making it very, very clear once again, Jesus Christ is God. And then relaying that into verse 10, and ye are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power. Again, he's writing to believers, he's writing to a church, he's writing to Christians and says, you are complete in him. Now, what does it mean to be complete? Does that mean that there's something missing? See, I'm asking you guys questions at times because I want some participation, right? I'm trying to, we're training right now. I I don't do well with just being up here as the only person that even like breathes or makes any sounds for 40 minutes. So um, anytime that I ask a question, feel free to answer questions. I'll give you guys yes or no kind of keep it simple but as he's right we're seeing this and he's saying you are complete in him this is an incredible word you are complete you are made whole in him we see this physically in so many different areas where you do word study of complete and whole and physically whenever christ would heal a person they were made whole of a person who was missing a limb missing a hand he would make them whole person who would come to them and seeking all these things he would make that person whole say you are now whole there's so many areas of life where we uh, seek to be whole, but yet we're lacking. And again, Paul is not the only one that ever talks about this. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, uh, again, he's writing a similar idea, and many of you are familiar with this. If any man be in Christ, he is a what? New creation. A completely new creation. Acts chapter 9, verse 34, and Peter said, Ananias, Jesus Christ makes thee whole. Arise, make your bed, and he rose immediately the making whole rising immediately psalm 51 verse 10 this is where david is crying out 
knowing exactly what it meant, and says, create in me a clean heart, O God. Giving me a new heart, a clean heart. Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 19, and later again in that same book, he writes, I will give them one heart. I will put a new spirit within you. I will take the stony heart out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Do we understand what it is that's going on here? The whole of Scripture is testifying to being made complete in Christ, that salvation, being given a new heart. This, is, this should be an incredible encouragement to each and every one of us because we know that our heart is incredibly wicked and incredibly deceitful. The self-deceiving that goes on within a person's heart is massive. And we see this all the time. We see people and we go, wow, how could they deceive themselves so much? Don't they understand? Don't they know that they're lying to themselves? But oh, how often we have done something so similar. And so we see biblically back all the way into the Old Testament that God is going to replace the heart of these people, the stony heart, and give them a heart of flesh. And he's writing here in verse 10 and making it incredibly clear that you are complete in him. Keep in mind what it is he's been refuting this whole time. He has continued to build the case that you do not need anything else apart from Christ. Those who are arguing that Christ was not enough for salvation, he is saying, thanks Harrison, you are complete in him. You do not need to add philosophy. You do not need to add worship of angels. You do not need to add all of this higher secret knowledge. You do not need to add anything. Stop. You are complete in him. God is the one who makes the believer whole. And as in Christ, you receive the fullness of him, the fullness of Christ. And this is what John the Baptist says in John chapter 1, verse 16. The fullness of Christ is given to the believer. And whenever I think about this idea of being made complete, because so often, how many, you guys can do a show of hands, how many times have you heard someone say, I just don't know what I'm missing in my life. There's something, there's a, there's, you know, we illustrated with there's a hole in my heart, I don't know what it is but I know I'm missing something, okay? I've heard that a whole bunch of times. Some of us have gone through it and even say, man, I'm missing something, okay? And often this is what tends to happen is we're talking with someone and say, have you ever felt like you're missing something in your life? We have the, I have the perfect thing that's going to fill that void. And we use these illustrations in this kind of way, and it's kind of like, uh, in a sense, it's like a puzzle, right? The God-shaped uh, hole in someone's heart is kind of a way that we've understood it. Um, but when I was thinking about this and being complete, um, in, in a different way than that, I, I thought about the idea of a puzzle, and I mean, again, participation, right? Show of hands, how many of you like to do puzzles? Just generally, you love puzzles. Okay? You're crazy people. You're crazy. I don't have the patience. I don't have the dedication to do that. I can do, like, the 12-piece puzzle, as long as Benji's there to help me. Uh, wow, judgment. Uh, but some of you, you guys would love the 500-piece puzzles, the 1,000 pieces, and spend weeks at it. Right? And that's incredible. It's something that's just good uh, to kind of get away, turn your mind off, and just play with it. And you start with a puzzle, and you, you try to do the edges first, and then you're building it in. Um, I remember when I would do puzzles, I was always really good at finding the couple corner pieces. Right? That's about all I could do. Uh, but my brother was really good with puzzles, the oldest brother. Um, and he, he would really enjoy doing it. But um, I was always really uh, turned off to puzzles because I would always get really far and then I'd be missing a piece or two because we never put it back the way we found it. Okay, it's a house of three boys. Do you really think everything got put back the way it should have been? Absolutely not. 
So you'd come to the end of a puzzle, and if you've, if you've ever made them, and you can kind of picture what's going on, you're continuing to build this puzzle, you're making it, and you get down to the end, and you realize, oh my goodness, I'm missing the final piece of the puzzle. Now, some of you are already irritated and stressed out inside your own hearts right now because the anxiety is building up, and that just drives you insane. Right? And this is what happens to so many people in life is they have so many different things, and they're trying to figure out, I just... I feel like there has to be more than this, and there is. It's one piece. I don't know what it is, but I'm missing it. And then they're looking for the one piece of the puzzle that's going to match everything else that they've already built up. But what's the truth of it? That that one piece that they think is missing has nothing to do with the puzzle they've already built. The, the person who comes against God and says, hey, I have all of these different things. I don't know what it is that's missing. I thought I'd be satisfied with money and with fame and with all of these other things, and I'm looking for just this one last piece. Is it God? I don't know. But here's what's so beautiful about it, that one piece that we think is the missing piece of the puzzle, you quickly find out it has nothing to do with the puzzle you've already been building. You quickly throw away the puzzle you've made, and what you're given is the complete puzzle of who Jesus Christ is, having nothing to do with what it was before. I'm personally, I'm personally would object to a, the God-shaped uh, hole in your heart in a way, and I understand what we're trying to do with it, but understand that it, Jesus is not a piece of the puzzle to which we simply fit into what we've already built. He is the puzzle where we say, hey, I'm looking for this piece that's blue and it's white, I think, and you completely throw it out and go, oh my goodness, I had no idea. I'm not even building the right puzzle. This is trash. Throw it away. And the other puzzle's already built. Made complete. Jesus, the fullness of him, made complete, and because of that, we are complete in him. Paul is continuing. Again, he's writing this. Keep in mind the context. What I love about walking through this book is that at times it's going to be repetitive, but we continue to see it in light of the context every single week. That we're not confused and having to rebuild the case. So continue to read this as one consistent thought and letter, which is what he's trying to do. He's refuting this idea that Jesus Christ is not enough. You need all of these other things. He's encouraging them. You are complete. You don't need anything else. Christ is the head of all principality and all power. Another way that biblically we understand him, he's, Christ is the fountain which is never going to fail. And these, these heresies are coming in. These false teachers are coming in and are saying, hey, here's some broken cisterns for you guys. Now, which would you prefer? If you're trying to store up something, you're trying to have abundant life, trying to have water as long as you could ever have it, eternal water. Are you going to have a fountain which never fails, or are you going to try to put it in some broken cisterns? It's ridiculous. It's not even close. You're going to take the fountain. Christ is the one who continues to do this, who continues in the fullness at all times. And we're relaying this back to a broken cistern. Stop filling it up. It's wasted. There's no purpose, no point in it. And I just love the word complete, right? Because we, I lose things a lot. Okay, you're always looking for that one thing that you can't remember where it is. We're all, we, always, we tend to feel incomplete in different areas or saying, well, we're almost done with it. Some of you have had projects at your house you've been working on for about 35 years. <laughs> Amen's all around. That's depressing. It's incomplete. It's not done yet. But what do you feel when it is made complete? Oh, the joy that happens at completion, right? It's incredible. Because you're no longer wanting anything. And this is why I love it. And why I keep saying these words. You are complete in Him. You don't need anything else. It's already been made complete. 
Again, you have the complete puzzle. Are you trying to cram more pieces into it? There's nowhere it's going to go. There's no need. That would be foolish. In 3 John, which is never really mentioned, uh, 3 John chapter 1, verse 2, he's writing to his beloved Gaius and says, Beloved, I wish above all things that thou mayest prosper and be in health, but notice this, even as thy soul prospereth. Man, I absolutely love that verse. Because he's writing to him and saying, hey, I, I, would, I pray and I hope that your health would be as healthy and as prosperous as your soul is. He's writing to a believer and saying, man, if only your health would be as strong and as healthy and prosperous as your soul is. Have you ever thought about that? About the soul of a Christian, the heart of a believer, the one who is complete in Christ, and how incredibly prosperous that is? And then just simply say, man, if my health was as prosperous as my soul, which is positionally in Christ, man, the incredible health that's going to be. But we understand the condition of our bodies. We understand the fallen nature of it. But I just love those words. Behold, or Beloved, I wish above all things that thou mayest prosper and be in health, even as thy soul prospereth. Do, do we reflect ever upon the abundant light that is, our, that is within our soul at salvation, that happens at salvation? Salvation is made complete instantaneously. So then it continues on in, in verses 11 and 12 and writes, In whom also ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, and putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God, who hath raised him from the dead. If you're familiar and remembering back to the book of Galatians, um, there's heresies abounding, and that circumcision was required for salvation, and saying, yeah, you've received Christ for salvation, and that's awesome, but, but if you're not circumcised, that's not going to be enough. The, the, the ritual practices of, of the Judaizers that were trying to bring these things back in and going back to ceremony for salvation, and again, adding on to Christ alone for salvation. And they say, well, Abraham was circumcised, so obviously you have to be for salvation as well. When Abraham certainly was, but that was about 14 years after he was actually counted righteous and his faith was shown forth. And so Paul is obviously not going to be instituting any more uh, ceremony in regards to this, but he's going to butt up against this idea of Jewish ceremonialism for salvation. And he's not talking about surgery, but he's talking about putting off of the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of what Christ did. And there's a difference here. This is the one not done with human hands. So who else can do it? Christ, God, only one that can do it. Any surgeon, any doctor, anyone who's going to accomplish circumcision is going to have to be doing so with human hands. But again, making it very clear, Christ is the one who has done this. It's circumcision of the heart, which is all the way prophesied back in the Old Testament. Again, butting up against the view that there's, that circumcision was enough to save, that whether you were good or bad or knew who Christ was or believed upon him, it didn't matter. As long as you were circumcised, hey, you're good. And how ridiculous that even seems and what that would be today. That would be the same as saying, I, I have no belief upon Christ, but I, I was at church one day and therefore I know I'm saved. It's foolishness. There's, there's no, no biblical precedent for this and no reason for that. The view was being placed, the importance was only on the external. Because it's easier to track, right? 
because we feel better about being able to say and to be able to look at someone else and say, ah, that person isn't circumcised, so therefore they don't believe in God. Whereas what we're seeing is the circumcision of the heart is the one that saves, not of the flesh. Whenever the, the importance is placed on the external, we are in a very, very dangerous position. An incredibly dangerous position. Constantine, uh, he believed a lot in the external, and he placed so much emphasis on the external that he, did, he was baptizing all the infants, thinking that they would instantly become Christians then. To say, well, if I baptize them, believing that baptism is going to save a person as opposed to what it actually is and the, the, the reflection of the salvation, believing that, man, if I can just baptize all of these infants, then they're all going to be Christians. I'm going to Christianize a whole nation by just baptizing all the infants. It's not going to happen. The view is on the external. There's no circumcision of the heart in that. So then what is it that was cut away? He's talking about the circumcision. and was just talking about cutting away. What is it that is cut away? It's the old nature. I want take a moment to turn to Romans chapter 7. We're going to be uh, looking at Romans 7 and then in a couple minutes going back into to chapter 6. But look at Romans chapter 7 verses 15 through 20. The circumcision of the heart, something that is being cut away. It's going, it's going to be talking about the old nature here. But starting in verse 15 of Romans chapter 7, it says, For that which I do, I allow not. For what I would, that do I not. But what I hate, that I do. If then I do that which I would not, I consent unto the law that it is good. Now then it is no more that I do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. Let me say that again. Verse 17. Now then, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. For I know that in me, that is, in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. For the good that I would I do not, but the evil which I would not that I do. Now if I do that I would not, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. Now, don't get confused with all the do nots and I would and I would and would not and should nots. Um, but keep in mind the big picture here. He's making it very clear that in the, we're seeing a contrast and the new nature has been purified, but our body is still a mess, is it not? But at salvation, you have been made complete. Your heart has been made whole. Positionally, you are found in Christ. You are redeemed. You are made righteous. All of these things that we already know to be true. Well, then why do I still sin? Right? Logical question. Because your body is still a mess. Your flesh is still a wreck. And what's crazy is that we're painfully so much more aware of our sinful flesh than we ever were before we came to Christ. Who is it that's most aware of sin? Who is most grieved by sin? It should be the Christian. Having the Holy Spirit making us aware of our sin, being grieved by it because we know what all that entails. The new nature in you has been purified, but your body is still a mess. Your soul is prosperous. We've already looked at that. We know that the soul is redeemed. Our hearts have been redeemed and the new heart has been placed in, but our flesh is still fallen. Our flesh still struggles. And I think it's an important point to make because I've been in churches where it's been preached that if you have sins in, sin in your life that you are struggling with, when you come to Christ, that sin is going to be taken away and you will no longer struggle with that anymore. And do I wish that that was absolutely true? Yeah, that would be a whole lot easier, wouldn't it? To tell a person, all you have to do is come to salvation, believe upon Christ, and that sin that you struggle with that you don't want anymore, 
it's going to be completely taken away and you will never have any temptation, any struggle, or any sin ever again in your life. Well, one, we know biblically that's not to be true, so then what happens? You've heard that told to you. You, you, you believe you come to saving faith and you say, I'm a Christian, and then you continue to struggle with sin. What then does that make you do? Look back at everything you've been told and believe it was all a lie. Well, I was told I'm not going to struggle with this sin anymore, and I still do. So obviously, one, I'm not a Christian. Number two, this isn't true. Or three, my whole church has been lying to me. And this is why we have to be careful about how we understand and what we teach and what it is that we listen to. You are not going to completely be done away with sin and with struggles. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. And that might be a little sad. It's always sad to me. And it should be because then we continue to understand our position before a holy God. But again, those who are in Christ are what? Made complete. So positionally, sin is not going to have the effect. And we're going to look at that here in a moment. But when you receive Christ, you come to him in faith. That is the end of your old nature positionally. That is the end of your opposition to God, your, your outward and inward opposition to a perfect and a holy God. And how is it that all this happens? Look at verse 12. Buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God who hath raised him from the dead. This is talking about union with Christ. There is not actual water baptism being displayed here. Again, using this as the image and using this as the relationship. Talking about union with Christ. Well, God, how, how is it this is going to be? How can this take place? How are you going to cut away these things? How is it that it's going to happen? Buried with him in baptism. Your old life died and was buried with him. It's as if your old life, all your sins, all of these things was also, as we're going to see here in verse 14 in a few moments, was nailed to the cross as well. Your sin, your old life, your old nature, all of that buried with Christ. Well, that's, that's a hallelujah, amen right there. Dead and buried with Christ. But again, it's not the end, right? Wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God. Risen to newness of life, right? This is what we see at baptism. Moving from death into life, this is what it's supposed to convey. And Paul is showing once again, because he's always quick, so in case you ever think that it's of, of our own doing, or our own efforts, our own works, he always adds in these, these incredible words of through the faith, right? Through faith. It's always been by faith. It's not because you worked so hard and God was so impressed with your discipline and your efforts and said, you know what? He really earned this. You earned moving from death into life because you know what a dead person does? Nothing. Really hard to earn stuff when you're dead, right? I think so. In my experience, that's it's been seems real hard. Right, thank you. Experience, exactly, right? So he's saying it's all by faith. What does a dead person do? A dead person does nothing. And this is what he's saying. He's making it clear. You're risen with him through the faith of the operation of God. Can a dead person raise themselves? Absolutely not. That's lunacy. Now, flip back to Romans chapter 6. And we are moving right along well. We're on good track. But I want us to look again at Romans chapter 6, verses 1. We're going to go through 11 because, again, 
this passage perfectly is going to be showing so much of what it is that's going on, of the cutting off of these things. And how is it that a person who has been redeemed is still going to struggle with sin? And all that that is going to, to entail. Look, at, We're just going to read verses 1 through 11 of Romans chapter 6. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Again, he's refuting, going to refute the possible accusations that, well, if grace is always going to come in when we sin, then why don't we just keep on sinning, right? If I know that my sins are going to be forgiven, can't I just sin as much as I want since it's going to be forgiven, right? He makes it very clear, starting in verse 2, God forbid. This is one of the strongest uh, refutes that Paul is ever going to be able to give in the Greek. God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein. Know ye not that so many of us were, as were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so, we also should walk in newness of life. So he's saying in in verse 2, how shall we that are dead to sin continue living in it? We are dead to sin. How should we continue to live in it? So again, don't, continuing on, don't continue on in sin looking around for grace. We're dead to sin. Why would you continue in it? Verse 5, For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall, also, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him. Crucified with him. Stay on that for a minute. That's not just kind of loosely done away with or parts are gone here and there. Our old man is crucified with him that the body of sin might be destroyed. That henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. Now if we be dead with Christ we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ being raised from the dead dieth no more. Death hath no more dominion over him. We are free from the bondage and the positional consequences of sin. What are the wages of sin? Death. You are free from the wages of sin, from the bondage and the consequences of sin, which are death. Freed from it. You, you, how many times does a person die? Once. Well, we've already died to sin. Sin comes up to you and Satan comes to you and says, Hey, I'm going to get you. I'm going to kill you. And you're like, Sorry, I've already died. It's not going to work. How incredible is that? You've died to sin died, been crucified with Christ. It's been buried. It is gone. Positionally, and again, keep, keep the understanding here, the actual consequences of sin, which is death, holds over you no more. For in that he died, he died unto sin once, but in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the true nature of the relationship. Dead to sin, alive to Christ. And again, prior to being made complete in Christ, what was the relationship? Dead to sin. That's the end. Dead. Sorry, not dead to sin. Before Christ, dead. Absolutely dead. Dead, dead. Can't move, can't do anything. Nothing. Dead to everything. Heading for death, punishment, an eternal life of separation from God under his wrath. Again, the praise that ought to be due to him for moving from death into life. So you see, you're going to fail in the flesh. 
But what happens with that? Sin cannot lay a claim on you. Death cannot hold over you because of what Christ did. Christ being raised from the dead dieth no more. Death hath no more dominion over him. This, this is incredible. The, the, the great boogeyman in our world is death. Those who are apart from Christ, they, you fear death because of the uncertainty and because of all the different reasons that are going on. But those who are made complete in Christ have no fear in death, and we're familiar with that. And I, I just love as Paul's laying this out, making it so clear in all of his different, different epistles, the, the constant theme of moving from death into life. Verse 13, And you... Being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. You were dead in your sins. Your, 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 your flesh was uncircumcised. It wasn't cut off. The sin that was in there, the old nature, hadn't been cut off yet. You were dead in your sins, but he hath quickened you together with him. This is the whole theme of Ephesians chapter 2. Again, death into life. You were dead in your sins, but God did this. He has quickened you. He has made you alive. We were dead in sin, and what does a dead man need the most? Life. Dead man doesn't need food. Dead man needs life. And this is what it is that God has given. Seeing us dead in our sins, He has quickened us together with Him. Death to life. Sinful man to righteous. Completely redeemed and completely restored. Complete forgiveness. Again, having forgiven you, does it say some of your trespasses? Does it say just the ones that you are willing to tell other people? Does it say just the ones that feel comfortable for you or that you're even aware of? No, forgiven all trespasses, all sin. Well, you don't know what I've done. doesn't matter if I know what you've done. God does, and guess what? It's been fully redeemed. This is incredible truth here that no matter how bad you may have been in a previous time in your life, whatever the case may be, those who are joined to him in union with Christ, you are now dead to sin, alive in him, having been quickened together with him, forgiven of all your sins. Past, present, future, forever. All forgiven. Well, but what if, don't ask the question, doesn't matter. It is completely forgiven. Made complete in him. And again, so how is it that all this happens? Hopefully you've been tracking along in these verses. I just want to go back. How does that all happen? Two simple words. If the only thing that you ever remember from this morning is these two words, that's good enough for me. In him. The whole theme of these five verses, in him. Look at verse 9. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Verse 10. Ye are complete in him. Verse 11. In whom also ye are circumcised. Verse 12, buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God, who hath raised him from the dead. At what point are we going to, to have to come to the reconciliation in our own thoughts and minds if, if we're struggling with this idea of completely dependent upon God and say, hey, maybe it's not me. Maybe I'm not the one that does all of these different things. Maybe it's not me who is able to save myself, but maybe it is only of God. Operation of God by grace through faith in Him. And I love verse 13 again. Hath He quickened together with Him. You're not just made alive to wander and, 
and wonder what to do. You are made alive with him, by him, through him, and for him. All of it points to Christ. And then we get to our two closing verses. Blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. This handwriting being blot, blotted out. I, I love this, the imagery here, because we can all kind of understand it and see it. And the idea of blotting out something that would be written. This is a handwritten note of a debtor acknowledging his indebtedness. Essentially, an IOU. Or I would write a letter to one of you and say, yes, I know I'm indebted to you. I owe this much. And here's a certificate of my debt to you. Signed confession of debt. Something that we owe. That we owe individually. That each and every one of us would owe. But Christ, blotting out the handwriting of it that was against us, contrary to us, took it out of the way and doing well with it, nailing it to the cross. It wasn't just burned up without any cost, any price, any payment. The debt that we owed was paid, paid in full at the cross, at Calvary, being nailed to the cross. And again, what is it that was nailed there? Look at the end of verse 13, linking these together, forgiving you all trespasses. All trespasses, past, present, future, being nailed to the cross, regardless of if you're even aware of them or not. This is the tremendous encouragement to me, is that some of us are aware of the sins that we have, the struggles we have, but man, the things that we don't even know about that we may have even forgotten, right? Unless some of you keep a mental note of each and everything and you're quick on it, that would be incredible. But the things that we don't even know about or we may have forgotten about that, are, that would be deemed as unrighteous or sinful, all of these things being nailed to the cross, all of them. Forgiveness for believing. Complete and total forgiveness positionally in Christ for those who believe. Again, the word complete. Complete salvation. Complete forgiveness. And in verse 15, And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Triumphing over them in it. A triumphant victory took place at the cross. And again, he's he showing this openly, spoiling principalities and powers. This is where the demons thought that they had it won. This is their big moment to feel great about themselves, saying, yes, everything that we've ever wanted, everything that we've looked forward to is going to happen. And it is at Calvary where Jesus crushes the head of the serpent on the cross, making a show of this openly, publicly proclaiming victory over, over sin and death, raising again three days later. The incredible, triumphant, and public victory. This, this is incredible encouragement here. And again, I'm one that kind of enjoys the show of it all, right? The public display and making it very clear to everybody. Jesus is God. He has conquered sin and death. He has been raised from the dead. And so this morning we look here in Colossians and we're able to see very, very clearly we are complete in Christ. He has cut off our old sinful nature. Yes, we are going to still wrestle with the sins of the flesh, but it is no longer our new nature that is sinful and that struggles, but it is our flesh. But in him we have been raised to newness of life. And all of those sins, past, present, and future, nailed to the cross. And because of this and in this, Christ triumphed over sin and over death. And for that, the only response that we have is thanks and gratitude and to praise him. There is nothing that we can glory in ourselves. Glory in nothing but the cross.
but simply looking upon Christ's triumphant victory over sin and death and just simply thanking him for it. Being incredibly thankful for that. Let's pray.